This time of year is one of those beautiful seasons where many will celebrate the coming of Jesus in a variety of ways. Some of you, you'll do so by putting in a nativity scene out in your front lawn. Others of you, you'll put up a Christmas tree with ornaments that speak to that moment when the world changed. But in this room, we will celebrate in part with candles. For centuries now, the church has remembered the moment that Christ came and what he brought. And so we light each Sunday of the weeks of Advent, four candles. That word Advent means the coming or arrival of a noteworthy person. And there is none more noteworthy than Jesus Christ. We've lit the hope candle for Christ is our hope. We've lit the love candle for it is in him that we find love. And today, today we light a unique candle. It's the rose candle. And to do that with us this morning are the Mobleys, Ken and Betty. Hi, I'm Kenneth Mobley, and this is my wife, Betty. Today we celebrate Advent. That word in Latin means coming. 2,000 years ago, the world waited for Jesus, and today we wait again. We wait for Jesus to return. It is the prophet Isaiah who tells us to rejoice. Because the God who kept his promise to send Jesus will keep his promise to return. Luke 2, 8 through 15 describes the joy Jesus' arrival brings. Luke 2, 8 through 15. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And angels of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said unto them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angels, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. As we light the joy candle, we are reminded that the good news that the angels brought was for all people. The good news of Jesus' birth and the promise of shalom are still sources of joy today. May the joy of the Lord overflow in your heart as his joy to the world. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the joy that comes from knowing you. Keep your promises. May your joy fill each of us as we remember the coming of Jesus as a baby and we anticipate his return as a king. Amen. Well, good morning, friends and family. If you will, grab your seat and grab your Bibles. I'm going to invite you to join me in the New Testament Gospel of Luke in 
chapter 15 here in just a moment. First off, how you doing this morning, everybody? Are you okay? Man, good, good. You make it through the storms last night. Any of you have a midnight visitor, kids, spouse, anyone, parents come see you kids, anyone in the night with a storm? Hey, before we jump into this morning's text, I want to do two things. First, I want to let you um, know about a new family that has just placed membership with us. They were at the first service, but I want to introduce you to Simon and Katie Stark and their three-month-old baby, Marlon. Can we just welcome them, even though they're here earlier, just welcome man. Absolutely. It's always fun to see new faces. And, you know, we don't, we don't take for granted anyone who's a part of the body here. And I just want to say, if you're, if you're part of the body here, maybe you've been here a long time, but you're still sort of on fringe, we just want to draw you closer to the table, be a part of the family and the things that are going on here, and be a part of the mission. Our mission is to reach the next person for Jesus. Why? Because we believe every person matters to God, so they matter to us. Now, one other thing I want to do this morning. Last night, we weren't the only ones with storms. If you were anywhere in middle Tennessee, up into Kentucky, you experienced them. And as many of you saw, there were tornadoes that touched down yesterday in middle Tennessee, Nashville, Clarksville, and even up into the Kentucky area. People have lost lives, homes, property. And so we want to lift them up. Some of you, I know, are eager to find ways to help and serve. If you want to find out some ways to get involved, reach out to the church office tomorrow. We'd love to help connect you with resources or opportunities to be able to serve. But in this moment, I think we should pray for our brothers and sisters as well as those who desperately need assistance right now. So if you will, let's pray. Father, we lift up to you this morning those who have been so touched by the devastation of the tornadoes. And we pray... Although tragedy struck and lives have been lost, we pray that through this, as we are told in Genesis 50, what was meant for evil or what was destructive or what was broken, you have the ability, God, to bring it for good. And so we ask that every person who's been touched by the storms would also be touched or met with by someone who knows you and represents you so that they know that there is a God who loves them. I pray that the, the prayers that we pray would be followed by the words or by the actions of our hands and finances to assist those who need help, not only there, but around us as well. Father, we love you. We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray this morning. And all those who agreed said, amen. amen. Well, friends, we are in the third week of this little Advent series called, And He Shall Be Called. And we're borrowing this language from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who centuries, 700 years to be precise, before little eight pound, seven ounce baby Jesus was born, he said something about who this Jesus would be. Yeah, some of you get that reference. And these are the words from the prophet Isaiah, chapter nine and verse six. He says this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called, and here we are now, different titles of Jesus. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, this week we are looking at that third title, Everlasting Father. What does it mean for the coming Messiah, King Jesus, to be Everlasting Father? Before we can even answer that question, we first have to address some of the problems with this title, don't we? First one, if you've been in the church world for any time, and, and, and if you're new to church, you're going to go, I don't, I don't understand why this is weird, why this is awkward. But for those of you who maybe have a little church background, uh, maybe this will kind of hit you. So if you're new to church, just listen in for a moment. This kind of sounds weird, but hang with us. We believe that God is one, but God exists in three persons, correct? God the Father, God the... And God the... 
Holy Spirit. That's right, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now here's the weird thing. How is it possible for Jesus to be called, go back one slide, how is it possible for Jesus to be called everlasting Father and be the Son of God? It's like, how does he do both? Like, isn't that an oxymoron? Isn't that sort of like good grief or jumbo shrimp? It just doesn't go together. Well, here's what we need to do. We need to understand how that word Father is being used and how the first people who heard this would have understood it. During the time when Isaiah wrote, kings would often call themselves the father of their people, the father of their nation. And so this king would be the father of this people. This king would be father of this people. And no one in their right mind thought, well, this king is literally the physical father of every person in that kingdom. Rather, it was a title to describe how the king related to the people as or like a father. It was a way of relating to people. And we get this, don't we? We use the term father for other people as well. For instance, uh, if you went through school here in the States, you've heard the term that George Washington is the father of our nation, right? Or you hear about Isaac Newton. He's the father of modern science. Or uh, Thomas Edison. He's the father of electricity. Of course, that's debated among historians, but you get what I'm saying. And it doesn't mean that Edison birthed electricity. That would be weird and awkward and uncomfortable. No, no, no. What it means is that he relates to it in a certain way and has a father-like disposition over his creation. Are you kind of tracking with me there? And so when it comes to Jesus being called the father, we're not hearing him come as God the father, but rather how he relates to us. So when he comes on the scene, he relates to people like a perfect loving father would in the way that he teaches, the way he talks, the way he restores, the way he forgives, the way that he heals, even the way that he sacrifices himself. He's the father. When the thief comes in the middle of the night, he's the father who steps between the family and the one who's attacking because fathers protect their family. This is what Jesus says, and this is what Jesus does. And then Jesus makes this incredible claim in John 14, and go ahead and throw this up. Jesus says, by the way, anyone who has seen me has seen God the Father. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you like me, you're going to love my dad. That's the picture here. Now here's the problem that the rest of us may have, even if you didn't grow up in church. The term father has some baggage to it, doesn't it? I mean, come on, if you've lived more than two weeks, you know that Father is a good gift, but it can also create deep, deep wounds. In fact, in almost 20 years of full-time ministry, one thing that I am convinced of is that most people, and actually I'd say all, but I'll be careful and not say all, but most people have some form of daddy issues. Whether you had a really, really good dad or a really, really bad dad, or you'd say, I didn't even know my dad, we all come to the table with some father issues. Here's what I mean. Some of you, you had a dad who was a very strict disciplinarian, so strict that when you think now of God, you think of someone who never cuts you a break, who's always looking to slam the hammer. And so you think of God as a disciplinarian because that's the father you had. Then there's others in here. You did not have a disciplinarian father. Maybe you had a father who is so carefree and so laissez-faire that you could do anything and no one was there to even care. I had a friend one time talking to another friend. One friend said, man, I got in trouble for coming in late. My dad was waiting up. And the other friend said, I wish I had a dad who would wait up. And so we all come to the table with a little bit of daddy issues, daddy wounds. And the reason this is such a big deal is because Fathers, hear me now, fathers are one of the most important and influential relationships in your life and my life. And I have young men who come to me all the time and they'll talk about it and they'll say, well, my dad, 
He has no impact on my life. I, I didn't even know my father. I'd say, yeah, how has that influenced who you are today, though? Every one of us have been influenced by our fathers. Which, by the way, just a side note, can't you see why the enemy would attack fatherhood in our culture? If father is the primary image that Jesus is going to use to say, this is how you relate to God, which, by the way, spoiler, that's what Jesus is about to say. If that's true, doesn't it make sense that the enemy would attack the primary image of what it means to relate to God? I could walk you through stats. We don't have time for that. But here's what I want you to understand is that God is not the reflection of your earthly father. As good or as bad as your dad is, God is not the reflection of your earthly father. Rather, God is the perfection of what it means to be a father. And so Jesus is going to lay out for us this really, really big picture. And he's going to do it by talking about God as father. Now, here's what you need to know. Jesus, when he talked to God, he almost exclusively addressed God as father. 186 times he calls God father. Only one time that I'm aware of, he calls God anything other than for God when speaking directly to him. That was on the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's actually quoting from Psalm 22. And so here, Jesus is going to say, I want you to understand what it means for God to be everlasting father. And he does so with a story. And this morning, we're going to look at the most familiar But I think important story when it comes to understanding who God is as the everlasting father. So in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is in the middle of a conversation with a group of people. And there are two different groups that are present. And I want to show this to you. These two verses set everything up. And then we're going to look at the actual story in just a moment. But real quick, here's the setup. This is beginning in verse 1 and 2. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Do you see the two groups that had gathered to listen to Jesus? You got one group called the tax collectors and sinners. And if we had time, I would walk you through what those terms mean because there's some real interesting cultural context to it. But here's all you need to know this morning. This would be the group that all the church going folk would call the really, really, really bad people. I don't know who the really, really bad people are in your mind. But this would be the group of people who are the really, really, really bad people. But real quick, by the way, just time out, time out. Um, Friends, there are not good people and bad people. There are people who know Jesus and people who don't know Jesus. That's it. So whether you know Jesus or not, that's the difference. And so there's some, they're the really, really bad people. And then over on this side, you've got the Pharisees and you've got the teachers of the law. And these would be the really, really, really good people. What everyone says, oh, these are the right kind of people. These are the Sunday school teachers. These are the deacons and the preachers. And so you've got a crowd full of both groups of people listening to Jesus. So Jesus is about to address both crowds with a trilogy of stories. The first story, by the way, all three of these have something in common. All of them talk about something valuable that is lost. They all talk about someone who goes and goes crazy looking for that lost thing until they find it. And then the third thing that all three of these stories have in common is then they celebrate, they throw a party for the rejoicing over the one or the thing that they found. And so the first story is of a lost sheep. There's a hundred sheep, one goes missing. Shepherd goes to great length, finds this lost sheep, brings the lost sheep home and they have a party. Second story, you have a woman, she loses one of her 10 coins. This would have been part of her dowry. Very, very, very important. She turns her house upside down until she finds it. When she does, she throws a party. And then the third and final story begins where Jesus says, suppose one of you parents... Has a lost child. Question. 
What would you do, parents? And where would you go? What lengths would you travel to find a lost kid? Because come on, we all know when that happens, you would do anything to find your lost child. Here, let me just prove it to you. Have you ever been to an amusement park or maybe a department store or even at church and you lost your child? Anyone else lose a child ever? Can we just, some of you are honest enough. Others of you, you didn't lose them. You left them. I mean, you're like, I'm done. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. I remember years ago, I was at an amusement park. We're hanging out and this woman comes out. She has her arms full of stuff from the concession stand. And then all of a sudden she looks around and she's lost her son. Her son's name is Brian. You want to know how I know that her son's name was Brian? She starts calling for Brian. Brian, Brian, Brian. She's looking everywhere. What do all the parents do? They start going, are you Brian? Are you Brian? Where's Brian? Everyone starts looking for Brian because you know what it's like when you lose a kid. Finally, she gets desperate. She starts to freak out. She throws down all of her concessions, $750 worth of food. She had two Slurpees and a corn dog. I mean, it's the way it is. She put out a second mortgage on her house, but she drops the food and she looks like an absolute fool. Unless you're a parent. In which case, it is the sanest thing in the world because you will go to any lengths to find your lost child. And Jesus says there is a father who lost his son. And he tells a story beginning in verse 11 that I want us to look at to see the heart of your everlasting father. Because unless you understand truly who God is, you will never love him rightly. And so let's do that this morning. So beginning in verse 11, notice the story. We're going to move quickly through the story, but here it goes. Jesus continued. There was... A man who had two sons. Pause there. Who is the first character introduced in the story, church? A man. Not the sons. Friends, this is not the story of the prodigal son. This is ultimately a story about the loving father. And so it begins, there was a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Now, here's what the son is saying. Dad, I wish you were dead. That's what he's saying here. Think about it. How do you get an inheritance? You do not get your parents' inheritance when they celebrate their 65th birthday. You get your inheritance from your parents when both of them are six feet under. The son is saying, Dad, I want your stuff more than I want you. And the only way to get it is if you were dead. But let's pretend you're dead so you can give me my inheritance. Now, dads, how does that go over? Kid comes to you and says, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me your stuff. How do you respond in that moment? The father responds in this unbelievable way. The father divided his property between them. Now, this is crazy. Now, I've told you before that I didn't grow up in the let's have a time out Generation, You know that generation, you do something wrong, what do they do? They put you in time out. And of course, you're going to think about it, how rotten you are. And Timmy's going, yeah, I'm rotten, but I'm going to do it again because you're not. Anyway, my sister, just side note, my sister, when she was in time out, they always had this one little corner. And what she would do in time out is she would pick off the wallpaper. It's like, put me in here again, see what happens. And so some of you, you didn't grow up in a time, you grew up in the time out one. I didn't grow up in the time out generation. I grew up, like a lot of you, in the generation That if I said to my daddy, I want what's coming to me, he'd say, here it comes. 
Some of you, you grew up with dad, like a lot of us did in America, and I'm not advocating child abuse, don't get me wrong here, but you grew up where dads were taught that Indiana Jones move. You know the one I'm talking about? They grab their belt, and in one single fluid motion, they rip it out, grab the other end, put it together, you know, fold it in half, and they could go pow, 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 pow. You know what I'm talking about? You just hear that noise, and you get freaked out. Some, some of you hear a car backfire, and you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's the generation. But the father didn't take notes from 21st century parenting. He gives the son what he wants. He divides his inheritance. In fact, he doesn't just give it to the younger son. He gives it to the older son as well. The older son, as firstborn, would have received two-thirds of the inheritance. Younger son, one-third. And he gives the younger son his inheritance. And the son does this. Not long after that, verse 13, the younger son got together all he had. That's simply Greek for he liquidated his half of the inheritance so he had cash money to spend. He set off for a distant country and then squandered his wealth in wild living. Now, do you know what this moment felt like for that younger son? Freedom. I'm out from the oppressive yoke of my dad. I can go see the movies he won't let me see. I can go hang with the people he won't let me hang with. I got to go do the stuff my daddy wouldn't ever let me do. It is freedom until it wasn't. That's how it always feels when you leave the protection of a loving father. It feels like freedom. But friends, every road has a destination. And if you wander down the road away from the protection of your loving heavenly father, it will lead to a ditch, to death, or despair. And so he begins to spend it all. But notice what happens next. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. ruh And he began to be in need. So the Bible is saying he realized I made a mistake. Now, the Bible also says that sin is actually fun. Did you know this? Have you experienced that sin can be fun? Some of you are going, no, tell me more. Okay, I'll tell you more. Sin can be fun. I've heard preachers before say sin is not fun. I'm like, you're not doing it right then. Sin is fun for a season. Sin's sort of like jumping out of an airplane without a parachute. First few moments exhilarating and then the ground comes up really really fast there's always a cost to walking away from the father and the son is now experiencing what that is verse 15 so he went and hired himself he's out of options so he hires himself out to a citizen of that foreign country and that foreigner sent the son to his fields to feed pigs. Now, for you and me, we go, what's the big deal? That just sounds like a fantastic breakfast. Ham and bacon, as far as the eye can see, this is cracker barrel at its best. But for the Orthodox Jewish boy, this would have been ceremonial uncleanliness. I mean, every day for the rest of his life, he is unclean. He can't be with polite society with his Jewish people. This would have been the lowest of the low. And when anyone heard this part of the story, they'd have gone, oh man, that is sick. That is horrible. That just doesn't work. A Jewish boy in the pig pen. Let me give you a modern comparison. It would be like, bear with me now. It would be like Nancy Pelosi being a bellhop at Trump Tower. Let's do another one. It would be like Donald Trump collecting funds and fundraising for the Clinton Foundation. It doesn't go together. Or it'd be like Evan Aldridge cheering for the Georgia Bulldogs. Again, it just doesn't happen, okay? Do you kind of get where we're going here? And so he finds himself at the lowest point 
And verse 16 says, He longed to fill his stomach with just the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So he's at rock bottom. Now hear me. Rock bottom can be and is often the grace of God. Romans chapter 1 tells us that often the judgment of God, the wrath of God, is when God says, I will give you everything you want. You want your inheritance? Go for it. And for some of us this morning, we need to hit rock bottom before we will ever look up and see our father and come home to him. And it may very well be, as hard as this is to say and certainly hard to hear, some of us have experienced incredibly hard things in our lives over the past year, relationally, emotionally, physically, mentally, financially. And you're going, why God? It is possible. I'm not saying it is this, but it is possible that in some of those cases, it is the grace of God saying, I need you to hit bottom before you will come home because simply coming to church is not the same thing as coming home to God and some of us have confused the two we come into this room and we think I am at home with God because I entered a building with a cross on it friend you can be in a church and not know Jesus the Christ and so he lets him hit rock bottom so verse 17 is the changing points the hinge verse when he came to his senses This is the pivotal moment for every person in their life. In your life, when you come to your senses, when I come to my senses, that is the moment where it's like, now it can change. And by the way, no preacher has the power to get you to come to your senses. There's no person in your life who has the power to get you to come to your senses or me come to my senses. Only the power of God himself, the Holy Spirit, interceding and working on us will bring us to that place where we are able to come to our senses. So when he comes to his senses... He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. Verse 18, I know what I'll do, he thinks. I will set out and go back to my father. By the way, that phrase, go back to my father, another word for that is repent. Repent simply means to turn around, to go back the way that you've come. And he's simply saying, I know what I'll do. I will repent. I'm going to go home. And he says, I'm going to say to my father, father. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Now, have you ever done this before? You know you're busted, so you begin to practice what you're going to say when you get home. Some of you, you know exactly what this like. In high school, curfew's 12. You start rolling in at 1230. And so what do you do? You pop the car in neutral so it just kind of coasts up the driveway. You close the door quietly, open the front door, lights are off. You sneak inside, close the door. And then what happens? Light comes on. You look around and the words out of your mouth are, Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven. What are you saying? Daddy, don't kill me. Okay? That's what's happening here. He's practicing. What am I going to say when I see my father? And then he says this. So he got up and went to his father. By the way, the reason he practices is because he does not understand the love of his father God. The reason that you practice and the reason you make bargains with God after you've sinned is because you don't understand the love of your father. You think that you have to convince him or manipulate him or, con- or try to come up with the right words. And somehow if you promise enough things, then he'll forgive you again. Do you understand that the grace of God is only grace if it is a gift, not earned? You can't earn gifts. Otherwise, they're not a gift. And so as he's practicing, he gets up, he goes to his father. In verse 20, I love this verse. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. All right, buckle up. These four things in this verse are 
amazing. If you don't know the heart of God, I pray you will after this. Are you ready? Four things that happened. Number one, notice, while the son was still a far way off or a long way off, his father saw him. Question, how does daddy see him? He never stopped looking for his son. The day that he saw that little ruddy head crest the horizon, his dad began to pull up the chair to the front of the porch every morning and he watched for his son to come home. People are coming up trying to do business with him. Like, hey, what about this cow? What about this? How about this? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to watch for my boy. And then that moment comes where that same little ruddy head comes back over the horizon. The daddy sees him far away off because the father never stops looking for that which is lost. Second thing, did you notice this? What is his response? He is filled with compassion. Notice it doesn't say he's filled with contempt for his son. Or boy, when he gets here, I'm going to let him have it. Or I'm going to let him know, oh, I told you so. None of that. What does he do? He is filled with compassion. That word splank mind means in his guts. He felt deeply for his son. Mamas, this is that feeling that you have for your babies, which is why you say some really weird things. Like you'll tell your baby, I just love you so much. I want to eat your face off. That's weird. Don't do that. But that's what he's feeling is this deep love for him. And then the third thing, do you notice he ran to his son? Now, this is astounding. In fact, if you and I had been there listening to Jesus tell the story, we'd have gone, what? Yeah. Why? Why? Okay, a couple of reasons. Number one, he was the patriarch of the family. You don't, as the dignified person, you don't run to people. They run to you. Dignified, you don't run. You get it? Second reason, to run, well, you got to unencumber yourself. And he was probably wearing robes and tunics, so he'd have to reach down, pull up, and then be able to run. Which meant for him to run to his son, he'd have to show a little bit too much of that whole man-thigh business. You know what I'm talking about? No one wants to see it. By the way, if you see me run, something is wrong. Either someone's chasing me, or I'm trying to get my money back from someone. And it's just kind of a crazy thing. And so he picks it up, and he goes running. And he shows himself off. By the way, by the way, no one wants to see that. I need to talk to our college guys. College guys, some of you wearing your mama's shorts with these little itty-bitty things showing man thigh. Put on some grown man pants, okay? It's biblical. Just wear long pants. We're good. All right, side note. And notice what happens next, though. After he runs to his son, he doesn't punch him, spank him. He doesn't push him. He embraces him. And he kisses his boy. This is incredible what is happening here. Part of the reason that this is happening is because he wants his boy to know, I love you. But there's something else happening. See, there's this thing in their culture called kezazah. And it's basically this idea that if a son or a child was rebellious and did what this son did, if he tried to come back, you would exile that child at the bare minimum. And in many cases, you would stone the child This story also, by the way, this story is not original to Jesus. This was a common parable taught by the rabbis, except their version was different than our version. Their version had the whole, there was this father with two sons, except the way it ended was not that the father embraced the son, but rather they stoned the son for disobeying the father and as repayment for his sin. And so when Jesus begins the parable, there was a man who had two sons. Everyone would have been like, oh, I know this story. It'd be like if I said, A long, long time ago, in a galaxy far, far, you know the story. What is it? Star Wars. Yeah, and like the first, like those middle three, not the other junky ones on the end, just the middle three, right? You know the story we're telling because of the way that it's being told. So Jesus is telling a familiar story, but here's what you need to understand. 
Jesus doesn't play it out the way everyone else does. The father doesn't stone the son. The father embraces the son. Why? So that if the stones start to fly, they hit the father and not the son. That is a picture of the gospel. That while you and I were sinners, while death was the sentence, Christ climbs up on the cross and says, I will take the blows so you and I don't have to. And by the way, the father who embarrasses himself and shames himself by showing off part of himself, that's also a picture of the cross. What did Christ do on the cross? We're told that he went to the cross naked, open shame. Why? So that you and I would not be born naked to the world for our sin, but we would be covered in his grace and his righteousness. This is a picture of your and my everlasting father. And it goes on. Verse 21 and 22, the son said to his father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now remember the apology that he was trying to work on. And the father's response is golden. He says, to his servants. Wait, 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 what? He doesn't even talk to the boy. It's like, yeah, be quiet. And he calls to the servants. He doesn't accept the apology because it's like, I'm not bringing you home as a slave or a servant. So he calls to the servants and he says, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Now these three are incredible. The robe, he says the best robe, not just any robe. Who had the best robe in the family? Do you think? Who do you think? Be the father, right? Daddy gets the best robe. So daddy has a nice robe. It's pressed. It's cleaned. It's ready. And he says, put the best robe on him. Who's wearing the best robe? My boy gets to wear the best robe. Why? He is covered in the filth of pigs, but now he is covered in the beauty of the father's robe so that when anyone sees the son, they don't see the filth of his sin. They see the beauty and perfection of the father. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul tells us that we have now been clothed in Christ's righteousness. That ring, it would have been the family signet ring. It was the ring that would have been pressed down into the soft wax when agreements were being made. And the only people permitted to wear it would have been... The father and his direct heirs, the sons. What is he saying? You are my son. I adopt you back. There is none of this slave business. And the sandals. See, sandals were only given to the children of the family. Slaves did not get to wear, servants did not get to wear sandals in the house. Only family members. He's saying you are fully a part of the family. And this whole slave business, this whole servant business, not a chance. Because you are my son and I love you. Time out. When you come home to God, his word over you is I love you, welcome home. It is not, let's talk about it for a while. Here's the robe, the ring, and the sandals. Verse 23, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Friends, our God is a party God. He sets up these beautiful celebrations. He's a God who welcomes us and then celebrates over us. By the way, If Jesus really is not in the tomb, then why is it that sometimes we enter this building as though we're attending a funeral? He is resurrected from the grave. Every Sunday should be a celebration because we are joining our heavenly brothers and sisters saying, Yay, God, for what you have done, are doing, and will do forevermore. He's a party God. How do we know this? Well, we get to the next part. Now, the scene changes. Remember, Jesus is talking to younger boy crowd and older brother crowd. 
So he says this in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he, now pay attention to this. He heard music. I get that. And he heard, what's that last word, church? And let's say it really loudly. It's, it's heard music and what? Choreography. Thank you very much. Dancing. Some of us go, ooh, is that even okay to say in the church? I get it. I get it. I was raised CFC as well. And I, I get it. We always thought that dancing was a sin. I mean, the word sin is in dancing. Dan, sin. I mean, it's right there. But, but friends, it's in the scripture. Let's read our Bibles. How do you hear dancing? What kind of party must it have been so you could hear dancing? I mean, this isn't just, look, I loved all of my little kindergarten and middle school and elementary age church parties. They'd say, oh, we're going to have a party next week. We're going to have cupcakes. It's going to be great. And I would always think, I like cupcakes, but it ain't no party because we still have to sit and be quiet. This was such a raucous affair that you could hear the dancing. So my parents' generation, if they'd been there, they'd been out there on the floor doing the twist, right? Until something popped and then they'd stop, right? And they sit down. My generation, we'd be doing the songs that they have to like tell you all the steps, right? Right foot two times. Now, everybody, clap your hands. I'm like, I'm such a good dancer. No, you, you poor white boy. No, you're not. And so they would say, come on. And so then our kids, our kids, they'd be doing like the wobble or something else. And I don't even know what they do anymore. This is the party that's going on. This is a picture of what happens whenever a sinner comes home to the Father of God in heaven. There is such a powerful praise of the salvation power of God that you can actually hear the dancing. But notice what the son does. The son called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. By the way, when you're a Pharisee, do you notice you'd rather talk to someone about what's going on rather than to God. He says, what's going on? And the servant replies, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. But notice the brother, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. You've seen this before at Thanksgiving, a family member gets upset. So what do they do? I'm not coming out of my room. What do you do in that moment as a dad? You go in there and you say, you will come out here and you will have fun and you will show it by the look on your face. And when we're done, we're going to discuss this further and have some more fun. You get my trip. That's the way we deal with it. What does the father do? Because again, Jesus is telling us a vastly different picture of who the father is. The father is not some pale imitation of earthly fathers. We are a pale imitation of the heavenly father. And how does he respond? Look at these words. So the father went out and pleaded with him. The father goes out. He is consistent with the younger brother and the older. He runs to one. He goes out to another. He treats both who rebel against him. One rebelled in his rebellion and sinful behavior. The other one is away from the father in his religion. And he goes out to both. The son says, look, all these years I have been a slave for you. He saw himself as a slave, not a son, and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Notice he is more interested in his father's stuff than his father, just like the younger son. But when the son of yours, not my brother, your son, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fatted calf. In other words, He's saying to his daddy, I've earned this. He squandered it. I've done what was right. I, I, I did all the things right. I've handled my money the right way. I did it right when it came to premarital sex. I, I, I serve in my local church. 
I'm a good guy. I don't cheat. I don't go to movies that I'm not supposed to, even though I really, really want to. I did everything right. I've earned it. He squandered it. Do you see how both sons were lost? In a far country or out in the field, both sons were lost. And both sons needed a loving, everlasting father to bring them home. Both, father, both sons rejected the father, one with rebellion and the other with religion. In fact, if you go back to Genesis, you see the way that both of these sons rebelled. The first son, he was the son who ate the fruit, right? God says, here's the tree, don't eat this fruit from the tree. And what does the son do? I want it, I will be God, I'll do my own thing. That's the sin of the younger son. Older son, he grabs a fig leaf and says, I don't need you, God. I can cover my nakedness, I can cover my sin on my own. Both sons are lost and in need of an everlasting father. And so Jesus Christ says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. If you've seen the one who will die for your sins, you've seen the one who would send a son to die. If you've seen the way that I care for people, you've seen the father. If you've seen someone who keeps watching for the lost to come home, you've seen the father. If you've seen compassion when justice is what everyone else calls for, you've seen the father. When you see the embrace, when you see someone standing between the stones that are rightfully yours, you've seen the father. 700 years before Jesus ever entered the scene on earth, Isaiah said, and one day there will be one. He will be the everlasting father. And when you see him, you'll know who this God is who's been pursuing you from the moment you were born. And so my only question as we finish this morning, as the father's words, he says, my son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad. Why? Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Friend, that little word son, that's not like younger brother and older brother. It's a different word entirely. It literally means child. And it's not a pejorative term like you, baby. It is a term of endearment. It is like when I tell my son and daughter when I call them buddy. Hey, buddy. He's coming out and he's just calling him the name. He would have called him from a little boy. It's like, buddy, come on home. So here's a question. Is it time to come to your senses? Is it time to turn around and come home? For some, you feel like you have a long journey because you're far off. The Father's watching and you don't have to go miles. You simply need to turn around and there he is. For others of us, we need to come in out of the field. And the Father is there. He's ready. He's waiting. He says the celebration is already in full swing for many are coming. Won't you come as well? And so I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Consider where you are today. Perhaps you're in the field or a far country. Or maybe you'd say, no, I'm at home. But, but you'd still, if you're honest, would say, but I struggle with being that field, brother. That's me. And so today, would you just tell the Lord? And would you accept the love of the everlasting Father? Lord, we thank you for this gift of moments like these where you meet us. And in this beautiful text where Jesus says, this is what the Father is like, I pray that not a person here would misunderstand who you are, but come home. 
And if anyone in this room wonders if the extension of this invitation is to them, I would invite them to reflect on that word everlasting. For the promise was not just for then, it is for now and forevermore. So we come to you now. Thank you for welcoming us home. In Jesus' name, amen.